The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. In the next hour, you'll hear from some phenomenal people and healthcare leaders and learn how their challenges became opportunities. Our goal is to show you how you can positively influence your own life experience and purpose and achieve success. And now, here is your host, Danielle Delaney. Hi, and welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. And this is your host, Danielle Delaney. Today, the spotlight is on Dr. Richard Allen Williams, MD, who is also my father. And I would like to introduce him by mentioning some of his titles. My father, Dr. Richard Williams, is also an honors graduate of Harvard University. He was the first black student ever to attend in, from the state of Delaware to attend Harvard. He is a clinical professor of medicine, the UCLA School of Medicine on faculty for 43 years. He is the founder of the Association of Black Cardiologists and also served as president of the ABC for 10 years. He is the founder, president, and CEO of the Minority Health Institute and an author of the textbook of Black-related diseases and eight other medical books. He is the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from Harvard Medical School and he is the incoming president of the National Medical Association, which is the largest black medical organization in the world. And he sponsors, he is the sponsor of three scholarships for black medical students. And welcome, Dr. Williams. How are you? Wow, who is that masked man? My goodness. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Danielle. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, and I have a few more things. It's my pleasure to be on, to be invited to be Thank on your show. you. Thank you. I'm delighted that you're here. Now, I have a few things to say before we get started. Um, I want my listeners to know this will be an incredibly powerful show in particular, as my guest, Dr. Williams, has led a powerful and tremendously empowering life. Additionally, I was going to save this for the closing of the week's show, but my guest is very difficult to surprise, and so since my show is called The Real Deal, I'm going to lead in with some real information. Uh, Dr. Williams is my father, and I'm extremely proud of that, Dad. And I'm and humbled and excited. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm humbled and excited that you're able to do my show. I am Danielle Willard Williams Lee Delaney before I'm a host or a counselor or anything else. And you are arguably the busiest doctor on the planet and are without a doubt the most esteemed and the most experienced physician of the very many that will be appearing here on my show. Um, and lastly, I have one more thing to say before we get, get into the interview. I would like to add that while you have always been supremely busy with your medicine and your music, which I would like to get into as well, um, you have been the first to arrive in these earlier years that I experienced trauma, random horrific trauma that led to my work with survivors, and you have always led me professionally by your example, and I'm not sure if you're aware of how, just how much you and your career have influenced my very fierce ambitions. So without the college education that I've had because of you, and without that fearless spirit that I inherited from you, I know that I would not be here today. And you and my mother have both always shown me and told me I can be anything I ever wanted to be, and not everyone has that good fortune. So you did not coddle me. You encouraged me to earn my own way and fight for my beliefs and for respect and to aim high. And uh, I've never forgotten, uh, even as a 16-year-old kid, while you may have forgotten this, learning to drive, while I terrified you in your car, you taught me to observe the wheels of the other cars in order to know and predict their intention to avoid accidents. And that has served me then, and it serves me now. It's a metaphor for navigating life. And I'm still watching the wheels carefully. And as we celebrate your 80th year, I just want to express that I'm endlessly appreciative of you and who you are, my esteemed and my beloved father. So thank you for being here. This is a dream come true, and the honor is truly mine. Well, I have to say that that's the best 
statement that I've ever heard about anything that I've done in my life, and I'm very grateful to my wonderful, beautiful, lovely daughter for doing that, for making that statement. Wow. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. It's it's heartfelt. And there's so so much much that we do talk about, and there's a lot that I don't know about your early life. I would like you to tell us an empowering story and also the truth of what it was like to attend a school like Harvard after going to high school in what is controversially called the ghetto, but was actually the ghetto. What was that like? Well, before Harvard, there was uh, the real deal, the real life in the ghetto, okay. or what some people now call the uh, the community uh, out mm-hmm. there in the, the poor section of town in mm-hmm. uh, the place where I grew up, which was Wilmington, Delaware. It's a mm-hmm. hard scrabble life. Uh, we thought we were okay, that we were very uh, fortunate people, and uh, I came from a family of eight children. I was the youngest one, and uh, I was well taken care of by my siblings and my parents. Mm. So I didn't know that I was disadvantaged at all, um, was to find out more about that later. But it mm-hmm. was a it was a nice life, although very difficult um, things that uh, happened to me in in that, that life included uh, my uh, having to attend all black schools from K to twelve. I didn't think that that was a disadvantage because I didn't know any better at that time. Right, right. Uh, and I didn't know that we were having to uh, we were receiving inferior educational materials. Uh, one thing that I did know was that mm. uh, our teachers were certainly not inferior. They were dedicated, mm-hmm. and they were determined that uh, we, as poor black kids, were going to turn out okay, and that we were going to be credits to society and, as they used to put it, to our race. We certainly are. We certainly so, are. Uh, that's how things started out uh, back in those days. Um, I worked hard, obviously, in, in high school and got... Uh, I guess you might say pretty good grades. I graduated uh, as a valedictorian uh, with a 4.0 grade average. And oh, that's that, more than that pretty good. <laughs> Thanks. That attracted some attention uh, mm-hmm. uh, coming out of uh, schools like that. And uh, I did very well on uh, the college boards. I got perfect score, scores all the way across, uh, mainly because, wow. again, the dedication of my black teachers who were determined mm-hmm. to put as much into me as they possibly could. So I, I got extra education on uh, weekends and at nights after school uh, in physics and math and chemistry, etc. And uh, I was able to do extremely well, as I said, on the college boards, uh, mm. which qualified me for scholarships to several institutions of higher learning. And as a result, I got a full ride from Harvard University. Wow. I'll say that I got a lot of assistance from uh, some folks um, who were uh, very prominent in the community, especially from the DuPont Company and a particular gentleman, a uh, Caucasian uh, doctor named Dr. Wells, who yes. took me under his wing and uh, made sure that uh, I was introduced to the the Harvard Club, and that uh, I became accepted and got my scholarship. So that's how things all started. Amazing. Amazing. What was Dr. Wells' first name? Do you recall? I have an inspirational Wells in my life. Who is absolutely fantastic. He was my angel. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's amazing. And it takes a lot of dedication from that person as well as your dedication to accept that help. So that's, that's a fantastic... History. I now, want to make could you tell sure me a little bit? Understood uh, that the, uh, my parents paid, played a very pivotal role. Uh, mm. Obviously, my parents were somewhat overwhelmed by having eight kids. Uh, and I can I imagine. And uh, I guess I I required more attention than the others because I was so young and small and so forth. But they gave me every bit of love and attention that anybody could ever possibly want or need. 
And it was wow. their love and guidance and help that I was able to get out there and walk the, uh, the long distances to school by myself in the snow, uh, two miles to school back and forth. And um, it, was, it was hard, but with their love and encouragement, I was able to do all of that. Yes, you were. And to think I thought those stories of heading to school in miles of snow, I thought those were just to make me get up. Who knew? Who knew? So that's the reality of it. Yeah. (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Most people just are saying that, and it's the truth with you. Um, Could you tell me some of your worst as well as some of your best experiences that you can remember from your college days to inspire other youth going into those years? Well, if you want to jump to college, I I can tell you in a very brief way uh, that my uh, one of my worst experiences, or maybe my worst, was also one of my best, and perhaps absolutely my best. So it was uh, two in one, so to speak. And I'll very briefly describe it. I was uh, at Harvard, and remember, I was admitted to Harvard. rather uh, under unusual circumstances, so to speak, because when I was admitted, I was only 16, and I didn't really know anything about all these big white schools out there. And hmm. uh, when I got there on campus, it was kind of wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, as they say. <laughs> but uh, in any event, I was uh, I, I went to this orientation session where I joined up with uh, some campus organizations. One of the organizations that I joined was called the uh, Harvard Society for Minority Rights. Um, mm-hmm. And it was the campus edition, so to speak, of the NAACP. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, there weren't very many black students in my class. Uh, the the group accepted me right away, and they said, um, you're one of the few black students around, and we should have a black student as the head of this organization, so hmm. we nominate you to be the head of it. So they made me the leader of the <laughs> campus group of uh, the NAACP. Uh, and I immediately uh, was challenged by a student mm-hmm. who, had, who is also uh, a freshman, had just come in from South Carolina. This was a white student who mm-hmm. uh, had some racist views. And mm-hmm. one day when we were holding a meeting um, trying to recruit other students into our minority uh, student group, he came up and he called me a couple of epithets, as I won't mm-hmm. repeat on air. And Thank you. Says, uh, you have your nerve being here among all of us, and uh, mm. I just want to tell you that you're not welcome here on the Harvard campus. Oh. So I decided that I wasn't going to take that, but I had to do it, had to oppose that graciously, I guess you might say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I engaged him in some debate in regards to his views and uh, why he held those views without even knowing me, attacking me. Right, right. And... Uh, I must say that I prevailed in that debate, uh, so much so that uh, the students around me gave me a round of applause, and I got a lot more recruits that day than I ever had hoped for in our group. Uh, So that was the bad part of that experience. The good part was that two days later, this student came to me uh, privately to my my house uh, room, Mm-hmm. and said he wanted to talk to me. He apologized, first of all, profusely for wow. attacking me that way. And he told me that the reason that he had had those views was because that was what he was taught as mm-hmm. a child in growing up in South Carolina in a very prosperous family, white family. There. Mm-hmm. And he was taught that that was the way that you handle black people. Wow. And, uh, I mean, it chose to show. No one is born racist. It is taught. That's true. So, mm-hmm. in any event, what he did was to apologize to me. And in addition, and this is the, the, the best experience that I had there, 
he said, I'm going to join the uh, Harvard Society for Minority Rights if I'm allowed to. Oh. uh, Now, you can't tell my parents about this because I'll get lynched if I go back. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they realize that I've done that. But uh, I I signed him up that day, and he became a very stalwart member of our group. So I just wanted to say that uh, you you just can't tell based on your initial impressions and uh, your initial encounters with people, and you shouldn't give up. Uh, I never did throughout my entire life when I encountered difficulties and adversity. I always pre- tried to prevail, tried to to see the good part of it, the good side of it, and to to talk people out of their if they had racist views out of those views. Oh. That's amazing. That's amazing. It just goes to show that people can learn at any time. You're never too old or too experienced to change your views, and that's extremely empowering. We are going to take a short break, and we will come back speaking with Dr. Richard Allen Williams about his history and his life, and we'll be back in just a moment. Stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. If you'd like to connect with Danielle, feel free to send an email to The Real Deal with Danielle at gmail.com. That's The Real Deal with Danielle at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi. You're back listening to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney, and this is your host, Danielle Delaney. And today the spotlight is on Dr. Richard Allen Williams. And welcome back, Dr. Williams. I have more questions for you. Fine. Okay. I'd love to know what actually motivated you to become a doctor. As your daughter, I've never really heard that story in its entirety. What motivated you? Well, I have a classic tale to tell about that. I had a hero who was a black doctor in my hometown of Wilmington, Delaware. And Hmm. the reason that I met him is because of the fact that I had a medical problem when I was four years old. I used to have uh, profuse, spontaneous nosebleeds, and especially Hmm. during the summer. So my mother Hmm. would take me to Dr. Banton, uh, in uh, who is a pediatrician in Wilmington, for treatment. And remember now, I'm four years old, um, and four-year-olds uh, are not necessarily the best-behaved children. I was, no. but uh, most, <laughs> a lot of kids are not. Anyway, mm-hmm. I was absolutely fascinated by being in his office and by him in particular. He was just the nicest, kindest person he handled me in a very gentle way, and uh, actually, very grown, I, I felt very grown up in the way that sure. he addressed me, etc., with a great deal of respect for this four-year-old child. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was particularly impressed with the fact that here was a doctor, you know, uh, kids uh, sometimes uh, 
become afraid of doctors. They go and, right. oh, he's going to give me a shot or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. He was nothing like that and not frightening at all, very comforting. And uh, so to make a long story short, uh, he became my hero. I was so impressed with him that I wanted to be just like he was. I wanted to be a doctor. So I uh, hopes and aspirations to become a doctor started at the age of four. Four years old. That's incredible. I went on from there. Um, As I grew up or got older, I realized I had a little bit of, let us call it, scholastic and academic talent. Mm -hmm. I tended to do very well in classes and I got uh, these accelerated promotions and all that sort of thing as I went through school. And the main thing was that I loved learning, Uh, really loved uh, the challenge of Mm -hmm. learning new uh, ways of dealing with information and chemistry and physics and math and English and all of the subjects. I just couldn't wait to get to school, and uh, it was just so... I was just so encouraged by my family as well. So mm-hmm. as I got older, I, I felt that maybe becoming a doctor was not an unrealistic aspiration at all, even though I, mm-hmm. I was poor and didn't really want, didn't know how in the world I was ever going to be able to afford going to college. I said, well, let's see if I can go for it. And I did. Uh, fortunately, wow. I got a lot of help and a lot of support from different people around the, uh, the city, including other doctors that I was uh, able to, to talk to, and from my teachers, of course, and mm-hmm. certainly from my family, from my parents. And when I got that scholarship to Harvard, that really did it. I said, well, I guess I'm on my way. Yes, and you were. And you were. That's amazing. Your history is so colorful and storied, and there are so many things that I absolutely did not know. And um, being motivated at age four is so unusual for a child so young to know what they wanted to be. I mean, I know I wanted to be a veterinarian, but I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't know any veterinarians, but you made sure I did meet some, and I realized I couldn't really handle the sad side of it. But you knew what you wanted to do at four. There was another story I recall about a woman who had consumption that you told me about when you were a little bit older. What was that? Oh, it was a, it was a man who had consumption, actually. Oh, a man. Okay. And uh, that was also when I was about four years old. Um, I was uh, looking out of the window, and this was during the summertime, uh, and I remember that there was a gentleman who walked by, and uh, all of a sudden he coughed, and it was a rattly cough, one of, mm. one of those coughs that you associate with terrible diseases, pneumonia, mm-hmm. tuberculosis, mm-hmm. etc. Now, my parents had taught me to be very careful of being around people who were sick, didn't want mm-hmm. to get those diseases that they had, and uh, one of the things that they cautioned me about was being careful with being around people who had coughs, and they told me about something that they called consumption, which is another word for tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so I remembered that. And when I heard that man cough, I said, oh, my gosh, that man has consumption. I need to become a doctor so I can take care of people like that. So that's what that story was all about. I just remembered hearing something about that. I didn't know you were four then. That's incredible. Uh Now, all of the things you've accomplished, what would you say to date, to 2016, to current time, what would you say you think is your most important accomplishment? Well, other than the birth of my wonderful children. Thank you. Which is just absolutely fantastic. (laughs) uh, I would say that uh, the most important accomplishment was creating an organization which is called the Association of Black Cardiologists. That Mm -hmm. is an organization that I started 43 years ago, and it was begun because of the fact that I recognized the great need that our society had for more attention to be paid to 
heart disease, especially in minority populations. And before I forget it, by the way, let me mention something that is very important. This is National Minority Health Month. And I think oh. everybody should understand that uh, and keep that in the context in which I'm talking now. Uh, Good to know. I started that organization out of a concern for the health of blacks and other minorities. And uh, I won't go into all of the details, but suffice it to say that uh, as I looked around my around myself uh, uh, 43 years ago, I realized that organizations such as the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, and I was a cardiologist at that time as well, uh, mm-hmm. were not paying particular attention to health problems in the black community. And in fact, there were a lot of myths that were perpetrated, perpetuated, um, mm-hmm. and that uh, one of the myths was that black people didn't have heart, heart attacks. Uh, as I went on in my training in cardiology, I realized mm. that was not true, but that was what happened was that black people were treated somewhat differently when a black patient, for instance, might go to the hospital uh, complaining of pain in the chest, that uh, that person might um, be um, greeted by a doctor who might say, oh, you don't really, you're not having a heart attack, you probably just have indigestion. Why don't you take some Tums and go home and lie down and everything will be all right. So they never got really on the rolls of people who had heart attack. They weren't listed. And many of those people mm. who went home would go home and die because, indeed, they were having oh. heart attacks. So now, uh, through the cre- after the creation of this group and the accumulation of, of uh, information about uh, health in the black community, we now know that black people have more heart attacks and have a higher mortality rate, in other words, die at a greater rate from heart mm-hmm. attacks than whites do. That was not known before the creation of this organization. This allowed wow. us, this knowledge allowed us to focus increased attention on heart disease in particular in blacks. And let me remind everybody, heart disease is the greatest killer of all of us, not only whites but also blacks. Fully one third of the entire population will die of heart disease of some sort, and that includes not only heart attacks, but hypertension or high blood pressure, strokes, kidney disease, and several other disorders that affect the circulation and the heart. And so uh, the discovery of all of uh, those, uh, all of that data relating to what we call cardiovascular disease in blacks was a major accomplishment. And since it was a life-saving situation um, and actually led to uh, our being able to pay attention more to uh, the health status of blacks, we now have found that things like controlling high blood pressure and Mm -hmm. uh, avoidance of strokes, giving people advice, etc., to uh, mm-hmm. uh, prevent certain diseases has led to saving lives. As a result of that, I, I have to brag about the fact that last year I was called to New York by the American Heart Association to receive their a Lifesaver Award. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't think that you knew about that. but I actually anyway. did. I did. Oh, did you? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I received the American Heart Association's Lifesaver Award for exactly those accomplishments. That is Fantastic. leading to uh, more attention and life-saving efforts on behalf of, of African-American and other minority patients with heart disease. So I'm very proud of that. You should be. Congratulations. It's unbelievable and amazing. Quite an accomplishment. And I find it so fascinating how people around the world like to pretend, I guess it's sort of a make-believe world that would be nice if it existed, that there are not disparities and that everyone is the same and that everyone has the same challenges, 
And there are different diseases that are more prevalent in certain communities. And, um, you know, such as sickle cell and certain things I remember learning about from you as a child. And it's, it's not that saying Black Lives Matter is discounting any other lives, just like saying that let's save the rainforest isn't discounting all of the other forests. But people are so inclusive that they tend to find that there's, some people find it distasteful to differentiate. And there is differentiation. So that I just always like to stress that that does exist and there's no reason to pretend that it doesn't. And I've always really admired and honored the fact that you make a point of that and never have shied away from that because it is so important that people are aware of which diseases exist in their culture. And I'd like to ask you, what is the current status of healthcare for, ad- for African-Americans? How can healthcare disparities be eliminated altogether, really? Well, I'd like to begin the discussion of this very important point that you brought up regarding healthcare disparities with a little historical note. And I'll be very brief with this, but it's a very important note. Some 200 years ago, maybe it was 250 years ago, there was a gentleman who was a demographer and a statistician for Prudential Insurance Company, uh, whose mm-hmm. name was Hoffman. And he did a survey of the slave population of the United States, looking at their health status. He mm. determined that the health of the slaves was so bad that he confidentially predicted the extinction of the black race by the year 2000. That should be a startling statistic to many people, a startling it is. Uh, statistic for people to consider. Obviously, there are still black people alive today, but you have to get the exact point that the man was making. He mm-hmm. was suggesting and uh, indicating that uh, there were ravages of the health of black people in slavery at that time, which had to be corrected in order to prevent the total demise of an entire race. And that was not being done. Now, remember, this is a gentleman who worked for an insurance company. And by the way, that particular insurance company insured slaves for the slaveholders so that if a slave died or um, um, became very ill, the slaveholder was rewarded or received money from the insurance company for that uh, that death or that uh, disability. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So those are things that need to be recognized. Uh, you might say that the insurers had some complicity in slavery, mm-hmm. in supporting mm-hmm. slavery from that standpoint. Uh, wow. But the main point is that the what we call health care disparities, which we recognize today, that is, differences in health status, in diseases. And I wrote a, an entire textbook of medicine, as you know, called yes. the Textbook of Black-Related Diseases uh, 40 years ago about that. These disparities started in slavery. So they are vestiges and hangovers so then holder, holdovers from the time of slavery. And they are still with us today. So we have those as terrible um, reminders, so to speak, physical reminders. Yes, we do, and it needs to be recognized. I'd like to... Excellent. I'd love that you're speaking about this. It needs to be recognized, and I'd like to come back and speak some more about that. We're going to take a brief break right now, and we'll be back speaking with Dr. Richard Allen Williams about healthcare disparities. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store. 
BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. If you'd like to connect with Danielle, feel free to send an email to Danielle at gmail.com. That's Danielle at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, you're back with Danielle Delaney. This is The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. And today's spotlight is on Dr. Richard Allen Williams, MD, who is also my father. I'm very proud of that. And we are talking about healthcare disparities in the African African American population as of right now. And I, we come back to the show and continue discussing where we left off. Um, Dr. Williams, I'd like to talk a little bit about that article in the Washington Post that was on April 4th about African-Americans routinely being undertreated for pain. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, sort of ties into what we left off speaking about before the break. Fine. Uh, I, I think that it might help if we kind of uh, got into that by beginning with a definition of what we mean by healthcare disparities, because we keep okay. referring to that in people need to be very clear about what we're talking about. I already gave you a historical background for healthcare disparities, but mm-hmm. I didn't actually give you a definition. What it is is a differential in the in healthcare delivery. Uh there are uh, certain standards which are established uh for how people should be treated for certain diseases by hospitals, by uh, medical institutions, etc., by doctors. And uh, if those standards are not uh, kept up, in other words, if they're not uh, uh, met by the practitioners, then that person who is receiving the treatment is said to be receiving substandard treatment. That would uh, be the epitome of a disparity if other people are receiving good treatment or high standard treatment and others are receiving substandard treatment, you have a disparity or a difference or a differential in healthcare delivery. That is the essence of discrimination and racism. And it should be well uh, understood that that is rampant throughout our society. There are indeed differences in the way that uh, healthcare is practiced, and also what the perceptions are in regards to diseases in our society. Now, what you referred to was an article that was in the Washington Post recently, which Correct. indicated that uh, African American uh, patients may not or do not receive the same amount of pain medication, let us say for pain, mm-hmm. painful conditions that whites might receive. There is a perception in the general, um, in general, in society in general, that blacks can withstand pain more than whites can. And in fact, that has roots in slavery. Um, slaves were, were selected for their stoicism, for their ability to withstand pain and to withstand the rigors of working hard all day and all night uh, in in uh, some respects, as, as someone in the South once said, you had to work from can't see to can't see. Uh, wow. And uh, that was the way that the slaves were expected to work and not complain and not get sick. Uh, it turned out that Africans 
were selected for slavery because of the fact that the attempts to enslave the Indians in the colonies was not successful. Apparently, uh, Indians were not uh, able to withstand the rigors of of uh, that hard, that kind of hard work, and so somebody decided to try out uh, Africans and brought them over uh, through the Middle Passage, and uh, found that they were acceptable as uh, people who could work hard and could could uh, withstand painful conditions. So, with that as a background, we can understand why there's a misperception that black people should be able to uh, withstand pain and therefore would not uh, require as much pain medication as whites might. Uh, That is a gross misperception and misconception, and it is very harmful to our population. Uh, It's it's something that is the essence of a health care disparity. Wow, I appreciate that because it becomes a psychosocial perspective of the racial issues. And I know that's a lot of what your book, Humane Medicine, also addresses. And I was really actually startled that I was so shocked by this article. And I found, I mean, just to give people a little bit of a background on the article, it does say, and this is in 2016, in this year, in this current time, that 58% of the study's general group, who were medical students and residents, believed they said that they believed black skin is thicker than white, and this is first- and second-year medical students who believe this is true, as did 25% of the residents, and that, that honestly shocked me, and I'm a doctor's child. I'm a black woman. I go to doctors. I haven't noticed a disparity in my treatment, but that's also because I have such an advantage, and I was, I was raised very privileged, and I'm, I very much appreciate that, but it is very disheartening and damaging for all people to see statistics like this, especially considering that it can also mean that whites are being more medicated with strong medication, and that's the epidemic of our time, the painkillers and the addictions. So I think that study was so very important, and I'm learning so much from you about this, and I think it serves everyone to pay attention to this information. Thank you so much for this. Well, I want to mention one other thing about that and kind of bring things full circle back to what we started with, which was my background and my experiences uh, growing up as a um, young black kid in Delaware and uh, the uh, situations that I was exposed to, the the obstructions and obstacles and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these things started uh, out as psychosocial phenomena, as you indicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a professor at Harvard whose name was Gordon Allport, and Dr. Allport wrote a book which was called The Nature of Prejudice. That book Mm. was used as the background for the 1954 uh, Brown v. Board of Education decision in which the Supreme Court unanimously uh, overturned uh, the... uh, uh, discrimination in, in public schools led to the opening and integration of, of public schools from 1954 on. Uh, up to that time, and, and, and even since that time, there have been misconceptions, which Dr. Allport talked about in his book, uh, which were based on what we might call bias, and some people call uh, mm-hmm. this bias uh, sort of subconscious but it's something that exists in our society, bias about different aspects of other races and ethnicities. One of the biases in, in medical, uh, in, in regards to medical concepts, uh, is that black people have thicker bones uh, than whites do, and therefore, mm-hmm. when you, uh, if you're a doctor and you're taking X-rays, you need to use more what we call KV, higher radiation voltage voltage in mm. doing x-rays of blacks than you do uh, with whites. So if you're doing a skull x-ray to look for skull fractures or something of that sort, you have to use much more radiation, it is thought, in some circles for blacks than in whites. And that was taught in medical schools. 
Uh, wow. That means that millions of black people were exposed to excess radiation, which can lead to things like leukemia, etc. Uh, so you can see how uh, things that start out as psychosocial pre- prejudices and biases can lead to, actually to impact uh, the medical system and lead to uh, injury of people who are being treated in that medical system through healthcare disparities. Wow, Dr. Williams, you are a Renaissance man and a true education and a true empowering individual to know all of this and still persevere and be able to get to the level that you are in your life and in the medical world and have this vast knowledge to share with the rest of us. It's, it's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm impressed, as always. And I also wanted to thank you for your service. I don't know if I've ever done that. Can we just close a little with talking about your time as a captain in the Army for the United States and Germany? That's something I wanted to know more about, too. Well, uh, that's something that I did not expect to talk about, but I can do that very briefly. I yeah, did not go willingly into it. the service. At the time that I went in, which was in the early 60s, um, I was uh, pretty well ensconced in my medical education. I was a, a resident in medicine at USC Medical Center, and I was uh, very comfortable with my family and so forth. And all of a sudden, I was called up into the Army. Uh, we had a, what was called a doctor's draft at that time. They mm. needed to draft doctors because not enough were volunteering. So mm. I was drafted into what was called the Berry Plan, and that meant that I had to spend at least two years in the service um, serving my country. So I went through all of the oh. uh, basic training and everything that everyone else does and uh, was commissioned captain in the U.S. Army sent to Germany and served there uh, for two years and then returned to the United States to resume my training in medicine. Uh, That's the overall of it. There are several things Mm -hmm. that happened during that. I found out that it was a very valuable experience, a very maturing experience for me, and it gave me a chance to, for an exposure to other societies, especially uh, society in Germany and in Europe in general, which mm-hmm. I have never forgotten and, and uh, continue to go back to to revisit. Um, I really loved the experience there and learned to speak German fluently and French and so on and so forth. So it was something, it was a, a situation where, when, like they say, if you're handed... Um, a glass of uh, lemons, some lemon juice, make lemonade mm-hmm. out of it and make something. Absolutely. Delicious. And so that's what I have tended to do. Incredible. Incredible. I'd like to delve a little bit into uh, your music as well. I know you'll have your, your quintet, the Raw Sugar Jazz Quintet, and I would like to share that with other people and make sure that they know where to get your CDs and if you could also mention where you can be reached on the web and also where your books and CDs can be purchased. Oh, my. Okay. Well, first of all, I can be reached through uh, best through email. And my email address, can I give that out? By all means. All right. It's mhinst at aol.com. That stands for the Minority Health Institute. M-H-I-N-S-T at AOL.com. That's the easiest way to reach me. As far as uh, my uh, musical career is concerned, that was something that actually competed with my medical career for a while. I know that. My father father decided that, hey, um, I needed to be focused on medicine rather than music and use music as an avocation, which I did. But I started off with a blast. Um, playing the trumpet uh, from the time I was eight years old. And uh, as you well know, going on to have a a very exciting professional musical career, 
being able to be in mm-hmm. association with people like Miles Davis and uh, Clifford Brown, who is my mentor in Wilmington, Delaware. So my music has been a, a very exciting element of my life, and it has given me a great deal of satisfaction and comfort as I have gone through this very difficult uh, and demanding uh, practice of medicine that I've had over all of these years. Uh, I don't know whether I mentioned my musical website, which is cdbaby.com, and we have six CDs of my band, Raw Sugar, uh, which are available to anyone who might want to uh, access them. Well, fantastic. I actually, I do use your music as therapy. I have a client who is fixated on one of your CDs right now in Florida. She listens to it in her car at home. And I do find music to be great with cognitive behavioral therapy as well. And thank you again for appearing today, Dr. Richard Allen Williams, my father. It is a delight to have you, and I've learned so much. And everyone join me again next week on Tuesday. I will have another exciting guest for you to listen to and learn from. Always empowering. And you can always reach me at the Real Deal with Danielle at gmail.com or at DanielleDelaneyCounseling.com. Thank you. Have a productive and beautiful day and speak to you soon. Thanks for joining us this week. Be sure to catch The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney live every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait for you to see what's in store next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.